You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. Ephesians chapter 1. We'll be reading in verse 15 through 23. The Word of God has these great words for us this morning, starting at verse 15. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which, you have, to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places." far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, good morning, everyone. How are you guys doing? My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors uh, here. It's a joy to be able to open God's Word uh, and share with you this morning. I just want to give you a quick update. Uh, As you all know, many of you know at least uh, that Pastor Will, he's uh, on sabbatical. I've been occasionally texting with him back and forth. Things are going phenomenally. Uh, His family is loving it. Uh, just taking some time off, getting connected with Jesus, uh, building his love for the church. And uh, two things that are apparently helping that are smoking a lot of meat. So he's cooking barbecue all the time. He's in Texas, so what else are you going to do? And then uh, apparently they went to some raffle donor thing. I don't know. They donated money and somehow won a really awesome cooler. So that's great. That's, you know, that's what you do on sabbatical. Hey, so we're in, a, we're in a sermon series right now uh, just entitled Our Future Hope, and we're looking every week at various passages throughout the scriptures, uh, trying to encourage us on what is our future hope, the calling to which we have, our eternal life. And then as we look at that, we're trying to help us understand how do we live then for today? How do we look with our eyes on heaven uh, in such a way that it encourages us to be able to live in the present, in the now? And this passage we have before us this morning is another passage to help us realize in view of eternity, in view of God and who he is and what he has promised to do in the end, how do we live today? So with that, allow me to just pray and then we'll jump into Ephesians chapter one. Let's pray. Lord, I'm so grateful uh, to be here this morning. Um, It just struck me how uh, quickly we can take for granted gathering with the body of Christ. 
Uh, it was not that long ago that we were all in our homes uh, worshiping in you uh, via a screen, and maybe some are still doing that. Lord, we don't want to take for granted gathering with the body of Christ. You say that within it, uh, within your word, that we sang uh, songs this morning, I was encouraged to behold the power of God, to see you, King Jesus, as crowned. Lord, I, I pray, God, that you would right now in this moment, Lord, remind us of the beauty of the local church, remind us of the just, man, just refreshing, uh, life-giving moments that we can have in corporate worship, singing to you, praising you, studying your word, or there's much to be celebrated and enjoyed in you. And so, Father, we come before you this morning wanting to know you more deeply, more clearly. God, I pray that your word would uh, be like what you said it is, a double-edged sword. That, Father, it would help us to know you better. It would help us to know uh, parts of our lives a little more clearly where, God, we might be keeping you out, we might be holding back. God, would you reveal that to us? But Lord, I pray that more than anything else, we would do what we already sang. We would behold your power and glory from now until eternity. Jesus, we ask this in your name. Amen. Well, never have I more clearly understood how absolutely small, insignificant, and powerless I really am than when I tried to surf. I don't know how many of you all have, quote, tried to surf, uh, but what I know is that all of you who did it probably only tried, right? Uh, unless you lived near the beach and you grew up surfing uh, and you're just like that kid who's like great at ping pong and then you find out he's got a table in his parents' basement, uh, you're, you're probably not that amazing at surfing. It's incredibly difficult. Well, Years ago, uh, my wife and I, uh, this is before we had kids, we went with a few other people, had the enormous blessing of getting to travel to Hawaii. And while we were in Hawaii, which is paradise, uh, we decided that, hey, we should surf because that's what you do while it happens. And so we went uh, to a local surfboard rental store. And in this local surfboard rental store, there was a guy running it who encouraged us in our surfing potential. He said, listen, there's a local spot nearby that's good for people who rent surfboards, basically. Uh, it's it's going to be there. It's a good spot. It's usually really calm. There's no danger. It's not like there's anything in the water that's going to get you. It's not like there's any like laser beam shooting sea bass or anything in there that's going to bite you. You're going to be okay. And so I thought with great confidence, this is my, this is my opportunity to shine. I'm going to get to try surfing. And now, a little, bit of, uh, a little bit of background, I'm an okay swimmer, not great, but not terrible. Uh, I'm decent at board sports. I can snowboard and I can skateboard, which is funny, snowboarding is like surfing. You're on water, it's just frozen and fluffy, and you're wear all padded up in a little like Michelin man suit, so it's a little safer. But surfing is, I thought, very similar. So I thought I could do this easily. So we get to this incredible location that's good for people who rent surfboards, and I looked out on the water, this pristine beach, and I thought to myself, I was with a couple of friends of mine, 
I thought to myself, like, man, this is an idyllic moment. Idyllic, idyllic, right? Uh, it's an incredible moment. I see this blue, pristine water. I have the surfboard in my hand. I feel like I'm going to get this. I know how to do this. I'm going to be able to conquer this, and I'm not going not to just try. I'm going to like really be basically a professional at this moment. Like that's <laughs> actually what's in my mind. And so we get into the water and we start to paddle, you know, where you like lay on the board and you're doing this whole deal and you just feel like I'm so great already and you're in like two feet of water. And then, uh, so part of the thing with surfing is that you have to get past the break, meaning you have to get past the part where the waves crash over you. And so you have to swim really, you have to swim as hard as you can to get past it so then you can finally surf. Well, I just keep going like this over and over again, and the waves are pummeling me, and I am losing. I am not able to get over this wave, and when I finally get over a wave, it seems like I'm getting moved to the side, and so I just end up uh, losing the battle, and it washes me to shore along with two of my other friends, and we get there, and we're like, man, that was awful, but let's try it again. And so then we got our surfboards and we swam with the sea turtles, no joke. Uh, we swam with the sea turtles out into the ocean and we kept trying again and again. And then all of a sudden, without even realizing it, it wasn't just that the waves were crashing over me. They were like carrying me elsewhere because you're on a raft. Like, it's not like you're in control. I'm swimming and it's moving me sideways away from this beach where I was at. And before long, I realized that right behind me is not soft sand. It's a rocky cliff, and I'm headed right for it. I'd been swimming so hard, trying to get past that break, trying to get over those waves, but it was winning. And before long, I'm right next to death. Legitimately, I'm not lying about this. And so I swam as hard as I could to get back to safety, narrowly hitting those rocks and just getting pummeled by the force of the waves. Thank God we get back to the shore and there's this local guy standing there. You know, like local guys at the beach, I think you can imagine what I'm thinking. Long hair, looks like he surfs every single day of his life. He comes up to us and he's like, hey, uh, I saw you guys out there. Um, I was like, oh, oh great, that's, that's good. Um, and he just simply informs us that, quote, uh, now's not a very good time to surf out here uh, because there's a sh- there isn't anyone else in the water. This is a popular spot in me. All of my strength, and yet it wasn't enough. Yet I felt like it would be. I felt like if I can just fight these waves and this pull from the current, that I could master it. I could get up on that board and surf to the beach like the true Poseidon I was, like just me riding that wave, looking like a professional. But that experience made me realize that I don't have enough willpower within me to overcome something that's not in my control. I don't have enough strength in my soul to keep fighting something that's bigger than me. Reality is, I'm simply not powerful enough to master the ocean, and obviously, I was never meant to be. We certainly know how powerful and at times deadly ocean currents can be, right? But do you know that what those currents and all of their power are actually useful for? They get stuff done. 
See, ships move all over the ocean by getting into transatlantic currents. It helps them to stabilize and to move more efficiently and faster and further. They don't fight them, but rather they get in line with them to a certain degree. There's an enormous amount of power in the current, and when we rely on it, instead of try to strive and force it on our own, incredible things are possible. So is it possible that as Christians, there's actually a current, there's power, that if relied upon, that there's something available to us, that if we knew it and relied upon it, that it would help us exponentially in our fight against sin, or our desire to see the kingdom of God expand in our city, to see miracles happen, lives transformed, justice restored, mercy extended, children rescued, hearts lifted, and churches planted. Is it possible that if we understood that thing's significance, not just in an intellectual way, but in an experiential kind of way, and then we leaned into it, that it would stir up within us incredible faith, confidence, trust, and closeness to God? Is it possible that something like that exists? So the book of Ephesians was written by Paul as a circulating letter that was probably passed around to a few churches. But chapter one begins with a beautiful description of Paul's confidence in the gospel. That's verse one through 14. He's laying out the gospel in all of its glory. And then he mentions his confidence in the church in Ephesus. And he says to them, listen, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. That's how it starts, verse 15. He's encouraged by their faith and their love. But yet, he prays for them because he wants more for them. And so he writes out his prayer for these churches. And the essence of his prayer is that he wants them to know something and to know it deeply and wholeheartedly, not just in an intellectual way like I mentioned, but an experiential kind of way. So what does he want them to know? What is that something that Paul wants us to rely on? It's the power of God. The whole text hinges on the power of God, and it helps us to see that we were meant to rely on it. So let's get a handle first on why we need to know the power of God, and then we'll try to sort out what we need to know about the power of God, and then we'll answer how we access the power of God. So first, why do we need to know about it? What do we need to know about it? And then how do we access it? So Paul starts out this passage uh, in verse uh, 15 by recognizing some fruit and then praying for more. Let me reread this. In verse 15, he says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. He's noticing fruit, and then he's going to, Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation, in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know. He notes their faith in Jesus and their love for the saints. And before I move on from this, man, sidebar, this is what Christians do. They have faith in Jesus and they love 
the saints. They love other Christians. You can and should love Jesus. Don't put your faith in Christians. We actually get that like backwards sometimes where we place our confidence, our faith in other Christians or other people in general. And actually, we're all sinners in need of grace and you're in a church filled with people who are in need of grace, which means it's messy and you're gonna be let down because we all need grace. And so we put our faith in Christ and we love other saints. It's actually through our love for the saints that we actually learn about the love of God and our faith is restored in Jesus as the only king. That's a sidebar before I keep preaching on that. Let's continue. Paul is noticing some great fruit in the, in the church, but he's praying for even more. And first, he's praying that they'd know the power of God. You heard those words over and over again, the wisdom from the Spirit, revelation of the knowledge of him, that their eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. He's asking in a very Trinitarian way that the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son, would grant the Spirit to give wisdom and revelation, knowledge, and insight to these Christians so that their, quote, eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. In Scripture, the heart, whenever it brings it up, uh, the way it views held, the whole being is by the knowledge of the power of God. So it begs the question, why do we need to be enlightened by the knowledge of the power of God? Well, it's because our hearts are dull to the power of God. We forget that God really is powerful. See, even though we've been redeemed by Christ, brought from death to life, we are still crucifying the flesh, being renewed in our minds, being transformed, being sanctified, all this language to help us to see that we are in process. So even though we know that God is powerful in our heads, intellectually, what we functionally believe, I think, gets cloudy over time. We need to be enlightened because what we know intellectually and experientially in our heart of hearts gets dull. So the question is, what dulls our view of the power of God? Well, honestly, a lot of the time, it's an inflated view of our own power or some other earthly form of power. To lean on your own power, your own understanding to figure life out and to make it all work better or to trust in the musings of some influencer to change your life because then you'll really have power over the struggles in life. Or maybe it's to trust in the power of the government to bring about the perfect changes we need or trust in the power of the people to keep the government in line or lean into the power that comes from listening constantly to podcasts so that we could know all that we need to know so that when the conversation comes up, I've got the quote for you. Because after all, isn't knowledge power? Or trust in your own emotional power to handle the incredibly heavy things that are happening in our lives. For many of us this morning, I think this comes a little close to home. You see, we know intellectually that God is powerful, but experientially, maybe we haven't really noticed the power of God much in our lives recently. So we lean into other powers. Maybe right now, the and trusting in the power of tangible. So it's just right now, I, I need to see the power of God, but it's not, it's not happening. And so you're just trusting that what you know to be true really is still true. 
But listen, if we trust in things that have proven themselves, what do we do when we forget whether or not God has proven himself in the past? We forget. Or maybe you feel like God's power is something that always stays at a 40,000-foot level, occasionally touching down to make sure certain things happen in your lives and then kind of removes itself again when needed. See, Paul is praying that this group of Christians would know, would know in the fullest of its meaning, intellectually and experientially, the power of God, because all too often our knowledge of God's power is like a dimly lit candle instead of a floodlight. But what's the second reason why we need to know the power of God? The second reason is that it's vitally connected to our hope. It's vitally connected to our future hope. See, the first thing specifically listed that Paul actually wants them to know in verse 18 is that they would know what is the hope to which he has called you. So what does this mean? What, what have we been called to? Well, Rich, last week, pointed out very helpfully, the Christian's hope is different than the way the world hopes. Our hope is not wishful assurance of things to come. In other words, the hope that we have been called to is that God actually will come through on his promise that we will spend eternity with him in his kingdom. That simply through faith in Christ, our future is set. Our names are written in the book of life. We will be judged righteous because of Christ's righteousness. We will be adopted into his family to spend all of eternity with him, for him, enjoying him, living for him with renewed heavenly bodies where there will be no sickness, no sadness, no death, no disease, no hate, no violence, no depression, no anxiety, no addiction, no struggling with sin. We will have him in his fullness. That is the hope to which we have been called. So what does that have to do with God's power? Everything. Listen, if God was not powerful, then what assurance do we actually have that he'd do what he said? Who's to say that we will really spend an eternity with him if he wasn't all-powerful and some other ruler or authority would come in and call the shots? No, our hope in eternity is confident assurance because the power of God is a certainty. And when we grow in our knowledge of his power, we grow in our confidence of our future hope. Thirdly, we need to know the power of God because we forget our identity. Notice what, what Paul says in verse 18. He says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now, this is actually a relatively ambiguous verse, both in the English and the Greek. Uh, the reason why is, is the question we might have in our heads is, is God getting an inheritance in us, the saints? That seems to be what it's uh, read as. Or is he giving the saints an inheritance? A few quick thoughts on this. I don't want to spend a ton of time. We can talk after if need be. Prior to this passage in Ephesians chapter 1, 1, verses 13 through 14, we found a really similar phrase. So Paul, within the same chapter even, is using that exact same word or even similar phrase. He says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And listen in. Who is the guarantee of our 
inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So in this passage, we are being given an inheritance in Christ. A chapter later in Ephesians chapter 2, 6, and 7, we find a description about what those riches are. It says, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So the riches of the inheritance are the depths of grace and kindness that we are shown and given through Christ. In every instance elsewhere in the New Testament, the word inheritance is used to describe what we receive in Christ. Forgiveness, righteous record of Jesus, the Holy Spirit within us, the guarantee of eternal life, adoption, his unending care and love. Those are the, that's the inheritance, what we get from the Lord through faith in Christ. Now, while it is true that the Lord will joyfully receive his bride, almost like an inheritance, his church like a groom does to a bride. I think it is a more accurate reading of this particular text to realize that Paul wants us to know with certainty what we have been given through Christ, which is an inheritance. It's lavished upon us. So the reason we need to be reminded about who we are, our identity, is because it's all too easy to forget the answer to life's biggest question and truly the question of our day, who am I? Listen, through faith in Jesus, you are a son or daughter of the most powerful person in the universe. Your dad can beat up all the other dads. He wins. That's your father in heaven. So being reminded of our inheritance in Christ is critical as we understand the power of God. Because who are we? We're sons and daughters of the powerful king. He is our Lord. He is all-powerful. We need to know the power of God because it's foundational underneath our future hope and our identity. But now let's move on to figure out what do we need to know about God's power. What does this passage tell us about it? Paul moves on to describe God's power and all of its greatness in verse 19. Let me read it again. It's in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? The key word here is according to the working of his great might that he worked. He's saying, okay, I want you to know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward you. Now look, let me describe that power to you because it already has been worked. I'm gonna show you how it has worked, where it's on display. And so he gives a list of the ways his power is then on display in verse 20. So measurable working of his power is great might. Verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So what's the first display of God's power? It's his resurrection power, his power over the grave. God worked this power in Christ when he raised him from the dead. See, we rebelled against our creator. We disobeyed his commandments and God did what he said he'd do. Anyone who breaks God's law is under a curse. The punishment was death, physical and spiritual. 
But because of our sin, we deserved God's just punishment. Death in this life and spiritual death, separation from this holy God and eternity in hell. But because of God's incredible patience and his mercy, he sent his son Jesus to be the perfect man, to live righteously for God, to obey him at every step, to depend upon him fully. And then he sent this perfect son, Jesus, to suffer the punishment that we deserved so that our messed up record would be washed clean. And he was buried. As the death, Jesus was buried, but death couldn't contain him. It couldn't hold him. It couldn't keep him back. The grave couldn't keep him. He raised to new life, representing what we are also given in Christ, new life. Sin has been defeated. Death is no more for those who place their faith in Christ. Amen? We have new life. That's the kind of power that God has. It makes things new. It brings dead things to life. Listen, in your life, when all you see is death, know that God brings life, that he has power to bring new life. When you think of that person in your life who is just completely wrecking it, just making just, just a mess, know that God has power to bring dead things to life, to bring his sheep home to him. He brings life to dry bones. In your life, when you feel like you are constantly struggling with sin or the effects of sin, know that God has power to overcome and to bring new life. Listen, if God can bring life into existence at the beginning, bring Christ back to life in the middle, then he can keep you living in the end. His power is resurrection power. But not only is it resurrection power, it's also sovereign power. It says in verse 20, right after he raised Jesus from the dead, that the Father seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. What is it telling us? It's saying that he now rules as king from on high. It says far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Listen, nothing, nothing in this creation is over King Jesus. He's bigger than everything, more glorious than anything, and more powerful than all things. No name has more fame than him. No event is outside of his purview. No grain of sand has not been counted by him. All things are under his feet like a footrest, and nothing can displace him. Not only that, but he is head over the church. He is the chief shepherd. He is the true prophet, priest, and king. He is our groom, and we are his bride. He is sovereign over all things. He is all-powerful. Church, why do we so quickly forget this? Why do we forget? Why do we so quickly disbelieve it? 
or at least functionally, we live our lives as though all of that is barely true, or at least only momentarily true. Listen, the whole thing is about him. I know you've read it. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God. It starts with him, and it continues with him, and it will end with him. In Revelation chapter 22, it says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. We are so quick to think that life is all about us, that God is like the coach on the sidelines of our lives, holding a clipboard over his mouth and shouting plays to us yelling at us to hopefully do the right thing. Life is not about our ability to win the game. Listen, we are spectators on the sidelines and about us, they are about game, getting goal after goal on the enemy. Our lives are not about us, they are about him. We exist for his glory and to make much of him and to enjoy God. What Paul is praying is that we would be so consumed, so overwhelmed, so enlightened by knowing the true power of God, because settling for anything else just produces country club Christianity, a bunch of people who get together to talk about their problems and their problems with everybody else, all done over a buffet of food and a round of golf. As Christians, we're meant to rely on the power of God. And when we do, the Lord blesses that and he works miracles. Listen, the testimony of the scriptures is not a country club kind of God, but an earth ruling domain uh, of darkness defeating, crushing God. He is an all-powerful God and he will come back one day riding on a horse in glorious light and every knee will bow and say he is Jesus. He is Lord. He is King. He is the name above all names. If you have forgotten the sovereign resurrecting power of God, would you come back to him? Come back to truly who he is, that he really is that powerful, that he really does raise things from the dead and give new life. He works miracles. He is over all things in this age and the one to come, and he is head of this church. But listen, you might be asking, well, that's great, but how does it affect me? Like, I understand it, big picture. I understand it intellectually, but how does it change my life? How does it affect me? Like, I I understand why I need to know about the power of God, and I might even understand his power, but what difference will it make? And how do I experience the power of God? How do I access the power of God the answer is really with me again. I know, let's do 18. Paul is saying, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Did you catch it? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us? Who believe. Listen, God's power is already ours. It's ours in Christ. When we believe in Jesus, we are given access to that power. 
his resurrection power, his power to overcome sin and death in your life, his power to rescue people from the domain of darkness and bring them into the kingdom of light, and his sovereign power that he is over all things as king and Lord. It's ours in Christ. And Paul wants us to know it intellectually, yes, but experientially to know the power of God. So if it's already ours in Christ, it's available for us. God will work his power toward us who believe. I understand that. But then why do I not feel like I'm experiencing the power of God in my life? Listen, is it possible that you aren't experiencing God's power in your life because you don't seem to think you really need it? Is it possible you aren't experiencing the power of God in your life because you don't think you really even need it? See, it's easy for us to get bogged down with busyness or our own sense of importance, and then God's power in our lives starts to feel a little more distant, a little further away, a little bit harder to come by. It doesn't mean that anything about his power has changed. It's that you've chosen to disconnect from the source because you feel like you don't really need it. But listen, all you're doing in that moment is swimming against the current. No amount of striving and paddling. When we live our lives apart from connection to the Lord, is that God's power seems to get thin. But what we know is that his power never changed, just our willingness to be connected to it. If you're anything like me, the reason you might not be experiencing the power of God in your life is because you're still acting like you're the powerful one. The only thing that swimming against the current in Hawaii got me was exhaustion and a desire to just quit it all and give up. Striving, forcing things in your own strength, muscling through life, it just leads to exhaustion, burnout. You're done. So listen, if God's power is already ours, then how do we access it? How do we lean into the power of God? Well, how how did this passage begin? Paul praying that God the Father, by the Spirit, would grant experiential, heart-level knowledge of his power to these believers. He asked. He asked. He could not say exactly the right thing to see their hearts change. He could not lead the best Bible study ever so his discipleship group members would really grow. He could not personally sanctify these other Christians. He needed the Spirit of God to work, and so he asked. Listen, too many of us live life as though the Holy Spirit is this sort of dangerous third option that we run to if Jesus and the Bible didn't work like we're playing with fire in the woods. But in Acts chapter 1, you have this incredible picture. Jesus, right before he's about to ascend into heaven, he's already resurrected. His disciples know who he is, that he really is the Son of God, that he came with power, and that he will ascend to heaven. The disciples are spending time with him, and they ask him a simple question. Lord, will you restore the kingdom to Israel? See, all during his life, everyone thought Jesus was going to be Israel's new king in an earthly sense. 
and he was going to kick out the Romans, that he would display his power that way. So they ask him now that he's risen, clearly you're powerful, Jesus. Are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Certainly now you would kick out the Romans. Jesus' response to them is, first off, you're not going to find out when I will do that. And secondly, he speaks of his second coming and the moment when God will judge the heavens and the earth and bring his kingdom to bear on this earth. So he says all those things. You're not going to know when it's going to happen. I will do it at one day. I'll conquer all kingdoms. But then he speaks to the meantime. The moment that the disciples found themselves in right then and there, asking that question of Jesus, will you restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus addresses the right now concern. He says in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. One of the things that should characterize Christians is that the Spirit of God himself within us causes the power of God to be on display. Paul actually prays another prayer in Ephesians chapter 3. He says this in verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit. Church, may we pray for the spirit of God to demonstrate his power through us. Not our power, not the power of new city, but the spirit of God at work in our city, in our homes, in our marriages, in our families, in our places where we work, in the places where we go. Would we pray that the spirit of God would be on display? Not our competency, not our our general level of temperateness in a crazy age. None of that stuff compares to the power of God. That's what we need. That's what this city needs. And it only happens when we come to the Lord and we humbly ask, Spirit of God, would you come? Would you display yourself? We said earlier in Romans chapter 1 that the the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, and we are not ashamed of it. Church, we act like we are. We do not preach the gospel with power. We, We hold back. We're afraid of being offended by what we say or offending our friends. Man, if it really is the power of God, why are we not preaching it? If the Spirit of God really does give power, why do we not pray and ask for power? Why do we not pray for our family and friends? Why do we not pray for the other members in our discipleship group or our neighbors that the Spirit of God would work? Church, Paul is praying, hey, you have faith in Christ. You love other Christians. You love the saints. But may you be strengthened in the power of God. You have access to it. It's yours in Christ. All we have to do is ask. All we have to do is ask. Every week when we participate in communion, we're celebrating Jesus' power over. And as you take communion, as you take communion, would you ask for more of God's power at work in your life? Would you ask God to exert his power that he promised to you?
Listen, he exercised this power of God, of his power in your life when he called you to himself to trust in Jesus's redeeming work on the cross, that his blood was shed, his body broken for you, that you might be redeemed, adopted, and empowered through the Holy Spirit. This meal represents his body on the cross broken for us, his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. As you take communion, remember these things. But for those of you who do not trust in Christ and and wouldn't say that you're a Christian, I'd kindly ask you not to participate in this meal because we believe that communion represents the gospel that we believe. So when we participate in communion, we are saying, I affirm the truths behind this. I believe these things. Jesus really is my Lord. But instead of taking communion this morning, if you don't trust in Christ as your Savior, I'd invite you to reflect on Jesus, that he really is the all-powerful. I mean, that's a that's an audacious claim, that he would be all-powerful, sovereign over all things, and yet laid down his life for you because of how much he loved you. He laid down his power by becoming a man. He humbled himself. And he became a man to die on the cross for a bunch of people who didn't care at all for him. Listen, you might not think much of Jesus, but I guarantee you he thinks much of you. He loves you enough to die for you so that you could be given eternal life by believing in him for salvation. Let's pray. God, we humbly just come before you in in weakness. Lord, we are not powerful light of you. But Jesus, you have, you have, man, adopted us by Jesus going to the cross, displaying, uh, Lord, your, your willingness to demonstrate love to us, to take the punishment we deserved. Lord, what love that demonstrates to us. And so, Lord, we come in weakness, but we don't come empty. We don't come uh, broken. We actually, we actually come strong in Christ. That God, we, we are strong not because of something we can will within ourselves, but rather we come before you strong in Christ. And we, Lord, acknowledge the truth of your gospel. Lord, we believe it. God, would you grow within us a love for, an appreciation for, a, a contentment in the power of God. God, you are holy, you are mighty. You are awesome. We love you and exalt you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Now and take communion when you're ready and stand to worship.